0: Hello, everyone. This is the Northeast Law View podcast. My name is Matt. And I'm Neve. And today we are delighted to be talking to Colin Murray, lecturer here in Newcastle in public law, about the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. Thanks for joining, Colin. How are you doing?
1: Great, thank you. Thank you for having me, Matt and Neve.
0: No worries at all. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit about your background? So, growing up, university, post-university and how you got into academia?
1: So I came as an undergraduate student from Northern Ireland to Durham Law School just after the turn of the millennium and it was a great time to be studying anything to do with public law because the Human Rights Act had just come into effect, evolution had just come into effect, if you like the whole subject was exciting new and reinventing itself almost entirely by comparison to, if you like, the traditional ideas of the UK constitution. And well, having had that initial excitement by undergraduate career, I really wanted to keep researching and working on it. I think like a lot of people thinking about careers in law, I had thought of being a barrister, but When you're thinking about being a barrister, you always are aware of those first lean years and the need to build up money ahead of going in. And I thought, well, academia would be a great way to remain connected with all of these developing legal debates and at the same time be building up all of my skills presenting in front of a room full of undergraduate and postgraduate students and maybe carry that through into that career. But having thought of it maybe as a stopgap career and a way to save some money towards potentially going to the bar, I found I very much enjoyed researching these questions and that the UK constitution was the gift that kept on giving because it wasn't just the 1998 reforms. If you like, we're now, we've lived in almost constant state of flux since then and some would say we're now into an era of unpicking a lot of those reforms in 1998. So the questions that have been dealt with in public law in my lifetime as an academic lawyer are almost becoming cyclical. They're looping back on themselves and we're really debating what the fundamentals of the UK as a governance order is. And so it remains a great time to study and to be teaching public law and i quite frankly, as a job, wouldn't want to be doing anything else.
2: How exciting has it been? The past 20 years, as you said, have had massive developments in public law. How did that contrast to before, I guess, the Human Rights Act in 1998 and the Labour government? How has the way you've been studying and teaching been different?
1: I suppose it's an interesting thing in that I didn't really have that baggage from the previous era, I came into an era where, if you like, the Constitution had been increasingly legalized, and it was trying to work out the beginnings, the first cases coming up in how that legalized Constitution would work, with it's more important role for the courts. And if you look back, constitutionally significant cases might have come up on a once-a-decade basis, and you could publish a textbook in the 60s or 70s and not have to worry about updating it for quite a few years to come before a major statute or case came along. And even that would probably be in one area of the textbook. Since I published the first edition of my own textbook with Roger Masterman in 2013, we've seen once again, huge upheaval in the constitutional order. Dozens, of major constitutional cases between the Supreme Court from Miller to Miller and Cherry uh, cases even like Evans that seemed hugely important when they were decided or Unison and they're only a couple of years old. They feel like a lifetime ago now and trying to keep on top of this set of developments is well you use the word exciting, maybe groan inducing at times or you wonder how on earth you're ever going to get that idea of an order that is constant and stayed and almost teachable because it's really difficult to teach and to communicate to the general public a constitutional order that seems to be constantly in flux but that does seem to be the story of the UK's constitution at the moment.
0: You mentioned your textbook there which I picked up in my first year, and you should probably the same. And that covered the whole spectrum, it felt like, or a wide spectrum of public and administrative constitutional law. But what is your sort of, if you have your specific uh, research in public law or specific areas um, that you've researched in?
1: So probably, um aspects of what it is to be a democracy, so certainly focused on issues such as prisoner voting and how they've come to define the UK's relationship with the European Convention on Human Rights, and, and just why that is. We live in an order that is still largely defined by the writings of Dicey, uh, with constitutional principles like parliamentary sovereignty and the separation of powers and the rule of law, but we rarely talk about democracy in the same way. And if we do talk about it, we talk about it as, oh, it's the thing that makes parliamentary sovereignty legitimate. So it's almost behind the scenes, and it's not something lawyers engage with directly. And I really fear that that sort of lack of engagement with ideas of one person, one vote of equal worth, has a knock-on effect in a constitutional order, that if you don't understand that, well, then you can put democratic ideals uh, in anything from freedom of expression through to the right to vote under a lot more threat in an order like that than you can in an order where that idea of democracy is embedded and that maybe we need to rethink what the UK's constitutional principles are. And I suppose as a spin-off of that or a corollary of it, If there's that idea of what a liberal democracy is, then I'm also interested in what the idea of political offenses are. So crimes committed with a political purpose and particularly the counter-terrorism law that that spawns as a response. Because it's again, all bound up in the idea of what it is to be a state like the United Kingdom and what it is for that state to call itself a liberal democratic governance order.
2: Thank you very much for that, Colin. It sounds like your work is quite um, intense, almost all-consuming. Public law is something we're always surrounded by, even every time you switch on the news. What's your form of escapism? How do you get away from work?
1: Yeah, dubious efforts to reenact the Great British Bake Off. I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old, so... Escapism is very easy to come by. They don't want to talk to me about the UK constitution. <laughs> um, yeah, you can only read Winnie the Pooh and the Heffalump so many times before any thought yeah. of what's going on in the news is completely pushed out of your mind.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. When I was doing my research in preparation for this uh, episode, uh, I typically went onto, the, went onto your profile on the Newcastle University website and saw that it mentioned that you've had work cited in the Supreme Court um, i was just going to briefly ask about one you still have to go to any real detail just what what work was that and where and by who I guess was it cited
1: so again it's was work about the nature of what the United Kingdom is and the fact that the United okay. Kingdom historically and to a certain extent still does have almost parallel constitutional orders It runs one constitutional order for the UK as a set of islands, and another constitutional order for its remaining imperial possessions. Now, those amount to islands dotted across the globe, but under that constitutional order, there are far fewer protections for individuals and peoples subject to the governance of the United Kingdom. And in... One group of people in particular, the Chagossians, were completely expelled from their home islands in the 1960s in order for a military base to be built there and leased to the United States in the early 1970s. Now, the Chagossians' misfortune was that their islands are, if you put your finger dead centre in the Indian Ocean, in a place that, if you like, controls... Or can be used to control an awful lot of the globe as a major air base. You have a site of huge strategic importance and the UK decided that its ability through an alliance with the United States to project power in that region of the world, to be able to have a base from which you can deploy bombers to Iraq or Afghanistan as has been deployed in recent decades was much more significant to its imperial interest than the interests of the people who lived in those islands. And so it was in regard to the Jagassians litigation and it was talking about that relationship between constraints on what government can do in the United Kingdom versus the far weaker constraints that can happen in other parts of the world, which are still governed by the UK under the imperial order. Now, those cases are still ongoing. The Chagossians have fought a campaign against their expulsion now for 50 years. And we're still no closer as a legal order to either finding something that settles their cases or the fundamental wrong that was done to them in expelling them or addresses this clash between different interests in the imperial order how do you reconcile the interests of a people who should never have been expelled from their homeland with the uk's desire to project its power on the world stage
0: moving on to sort of the substance of this episode i guess and It's obviously a crucial period right now, um, next few weeks, in the Brexit negotiations. And I've certainly noticed over the last week or so that the news has maybe gone from a shift from coronavirus-heavy to focusing a lot more on the negotiations. Um, What is it like as an academic at the minute in public law trying to keep up to date with the negotiations and, I guess, the stages of Brexit?
1: Well, again, it's about redefining the idea of what the UK as a governance order is. It was a governance order that was linked into and tied into the European Union's legal order. And, if you like, the process of withdrawing from the European Union is about pulling the UK out of that order. Now, the withdrawal agreement did that act of pulling out. The future relationship agreement being put together at the moment is attempting to stitch connections back together. What are the links that the UK will have with the EU as an external state? Will there be bits of EU law that continues to work within the UK's order and how will they work? And there are lots of external states to the EU that have complex relationships with the European Union. So you could have the European Economic Area states like Norway or Iceland that are tied in essentially to large sections of the EU's legal order. Or you can have states like Switzerland that have a network of agreements which cover their relationships with the EU. The UK is if you like trying to negotiate something that's a much looser agreement, uh it's been described as a thin free trade agreement. It's very trade focused, but it's nonetheless important because it will be vital for how bits of the UK hold together as a country, or if they hold together as a country after Brexit, because without that sort of free trade agreement, it's very hard to make the Northern Ireland Protocol. That was agreed as part of the withdrawal agreement, functional. So again, we're trying to redefine a relationship. And that process of redefinition is now four and a half years old since Brexit happened. It has taken a long time, precisely because these questions are complex and because they require trade-offs. There is no zero sum win one side gets everything and is totally victorious in something like a trade negotiation. And that's why this is brought and it's going down to the wire at the moment in, as we speak, in December 2020. And yeah, I'm still unclear as to whether an agreement can even be reached on a lot of these points. And if it is, whether it will hold or whether one side will feel particularly hard done by.
2: Do you think that when the referendum was called that there wasn't almost there was really a consideration for the kind of problems that you talk about in your blog post that we move on to with Northern Ireland and with trying to negotiate a trade deal?
1: I think when it comes to referendums in the United Kingdom, we need to profoundly think about what these do. And the nature of the Brexit referendum asks a very simple question. Do the people of the United Kingdom want to remain in or withdraw from the European Union? And the problem with that is it doesn't give any guidance to Parliament at all about what the people of the United Kingdom actually want. Because you can jump up and down and say 17.2 million people voted for Brexit but what does Brexit mean? And it didn't mean the same thing to all of those 17.2 million people. If you like what we've just talked about with a Swiss model of close relationship with the EU or Ukraine's association with the EU or Norway's association with the EU, these might all be states on the periphery of the EU, but they all interact with the EU very differently. And there was, if you like, never really any consideration about what Brexit would mean and what the UK's relationship would be. And even if there was consideration of it, it was just individual voices in the referendum debate. The people of the United Kingdom in a one-stage referendum could just say, we want to leave the EU. And there's not been any sort of Engagement with the people as to what they want after this. So instead, what you have is a story of a series of conservative governments trying to address debates within their own political party as to what Brexit should look like. And there are lots of problems with the UK's governance order in terms of translating the will of the people into the number of MPs voting on a particular issue in Parliament, first past the post isn't a particularly good system for reflecting the popular will, so Boris Johnson certainly didn't get over 50% of votes in the 2019 general election but commands a handsome majority in the Commons. Sometimes you look at opinion polling now and it suggests the UK as a population is quite nervous about Brexit and isn't fully on board with where the project is going, but there isn't any drive to go to a second referendum about this from the government. We have a governance order that is maybe not connecting entirely to what the people would say, or we've got a governance order that's saying things like 17.2 million people voted for this, when we don't know what 17.2 million people voted for. Again, there was a vote for Brexit, but is that enough within this order and was enough done to properly understand what that means and how we construct a new order off the back of that?
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your work advising government? If you can, um, I know I've seen it streamed, and I'm not sure exactly, I know it was a committee, um, but if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's less advising government than advising parliament, because parliament, of course, is trying to understand, and has been for four and a half years, trying to understand the implications of Brexit. Yeah. And so in areas like the debates over the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, and before that, trying to understand what some sort of special status for Northern Ireland would look like, those are intensely legal debates. They're talking about the constitutional relationship between different parts of the UK and what, how the UK will continue to interact with the EU's governance order when it comes to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is now probably one of the most interesting constitutional spaces in the world the EU order continues to apply where traded goods and goods are at issue. The UK has signed up to keep Northern Ireland within that order, whereas the UK has statehood over this territory. So you get an idea almost of overlapping sovereignties or of overlapping legal orders, and we're trying to build up connections between them or to work out how they talk to each other with Brexit becoming a reality at the end of the transition implementation period, at the end of December 2020. We don't yet know how that's going to happen or how Northern Ireland is going to function under the weight of these overlapping governance orders. And that's, yeah, a little bit exciting in terms of the abstract theory of constitutional law and how it might work, but it's probably also scary in terms of just how that's going to affect people, and the uncertainties that are surrounding it. It's a really complex time, and there is there are so many moving parts to these agreements that there is a huge potential for things going wrong, and that affecting people's day-to-day lives.
0: Um, so moving on to the blog post that you can find in the description below, um, could you tell us a little bit about the blog post, the Good Friday, agreement and the protocols and trade arrangements.
1: Okay, so we're in a situation now where the internal market bill has become a flashpoint in the future relationship agreement negotiations. And it's a flashpoint because it seeks to unpick, along with a finance bill that's due to be published this week, bits of the protocol. Now, Brandon Lewis, the UK's Northern Ireland secretary, described these as specific and limited breaches of international law. Now, if you're unpacking what he's saying, the UK's agreement of the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland was put in place to protect the Belfast Agreement of 1998 and all of the connections, that had built up between the UK and Ireland across the land border since then. So if you like ideas of an all island economy and all of the connectivity that had built since the conflict in Northern Ireland ended, all of that was bound together in the protocol. So as soon as the UK says, we're gonna breach international law, it means we're gonna breach the protocol. And the protocol was agreed by the UK and the EU as what was necessary to protect the 1998 agreement and all of the arrangements that had existed under it. The 1998 agreement existed in an ecosystem of EU law. It's a short agreement. It doesn't have to talk about trade or cross-border connectivity uh, to any great extent because it was built on a foundation of both Ireland and the UK being in the European Union. Now, as soon as you take that away, you really, you start to make any sort of cross-border cooperation much more difficult to function. And the idea that the UK would, in a fairly offhand manner, just say, well, we don't like what we agreed to, Less than a year ago. This was September 2020 that the bill was introduced and it had been agreed in October 2019. We don't like what we agreed now. Maybe we didn't fully understand what we'd agreed. Now it's going to be very difficult for us. Maybe we give away too much in negotiations. Uh, We'd like to redo this whole thing. Well, A, you create two huge pressures. A, how does the EU trust the UK? It's just made an agreement with the UK that the UK has now said, no, it's just international law. We've got parliamentary sovereignty. We're going to tear that up and decide what this means. And B, how is the Northern Ireland protocol going to do the jobs that it was thought it was going to do in those circumstances? So if you like the Internal Market Bill and the Finance Bill work in two distinct ways to put the whole system under threat. They undermine the potential for concluding a future relationship agreement, because they raise issues of the trustworthiness of the UK as a negotiating partner, and they undermine the effectiveness of the protocols arrangements, and thereby go back to the point of putting everything at risk in the Northern Ireland context and maybe creating frictions and tensions about that governance order and about how Northern Ireland is working. And that starts to lead on to questions like, will will this tension spill over into pressure to take Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom? And that's built into the idea of Northern Ireland remains in the UK by virtue of consent. If it's people want to leave and they express that, choice in a referendum, they can do so.
0: Yeah, on that point, we hear a lot recently about a potential new another Scottish referendum um, particularly on the back of the Scottish vote in Brexit and how they voted to remain um, and Northern Ireland similarly voted to remain how much sort of weight does that have for the reunification of Ireland um, on the back of that?
1: Um, When it comes to the difference between Scotland and Northern Ireland in this whole process, both of them have the case to be made that their people, people in Scotland and people in Northern Ireland, didn't vote for Brexit. So why should they be subject to this? Now, the problem for that argument is that the vote on Brexit was a whole UK vote. So, It is very difficult to break the UK down into its constituent parts and the referendum in 2016 made no facility for doing so. It did not say all four constituent parts of the UK must vote for Brexit for this to have an effect. What Northern Ireland had additionally, and why there are special arrangements for Northern Ireland but not for Scotland, is this additional international agreement, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Now, that setup of the 1998 agreement is the whole focus of why there is a special set of arrangements in place for Northern Ireland. And you could say, if those arrangements work really well, and they create no friction at either the sea border between Northern Ireland and the remainder of the United Kingdom, or the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, well, then Brexit won't necessarily raise any new tensions. Everything that EU law relied upon to work within Northern Ireland and to build its place, its linkage between Great Britain and Ireland will still be in place. With those special arrangements, you can make Brexit work for Northern Ireland is the scenario that... If you like, was promised to the people of Northern Ireland. The problem is if those arrangements don't work particularly well, and already we're seeing the Internal Market Bill and the Finance Bill and these arrangements being, well, ripped up and reworked and tensions at the border and the difficulty of making trade happen. combination of all of that might mean that, well, day-to-day life in Northern Ireland becomes more expensive and all of the goods that you might expect to flow into Northern Ireland, well, don't continue to flow. And if there is that pressure, this system just isn't working very well for us, well, then Northern Ireland will have a choice. Does it give up on the protocol special arrangements when it comes to trade? And it has a, the Northern Ireland Assembly has a vote to do that, in 2024 as part of the protocol? And if you like then do a much fuller Brexit with the entire of the United Kingdom or will the pressure start to build to say, well, this is all about Brexit and Brexit isn't working particularly well, let's just return into the EU fully. So reunification with Ireland brings Northern Ireland back into the European Union. But the problem is that's a fundamental divide between unionism and nationalism in Northern Ireland. And Brexit has bolted itself on to this and is starting to define identities within Northern Ireland. What it is to conceive of yourself as being European, it becomes increasingly hard to maintain a European and a Unionist identity simultaneously if the protocol isn't working or if it's being hollowed out by what the UK government is trying to do at Westminster. And then all of those tensions knock on into Scotland. Say the arrangements for Northern Ireland are working brilliantly. Well, Scotland might say, well, why why can't we get a piece of that action? Why can't we create our own special relationship with the European Union? And that might only happen through Scotland and the Scottish National Party agitating for a further independence referendum. All of these now are pieces fitting together in a complex puzzle, and they will all interact with each other in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, it must be hard to keep on top of, but it's a very, uh, it's a really interesting area of law. It's something that I've liked seeing, being able to start studying public law in the first year and still sort of having that foundation and being able to sort of understand Um, definitely more recently, especially at the minute with how
2: important it all is. Yeah, and I think you brought up a really interesting point there about how the island's relationship with the UK post-Brexit and the impact that that will have on Scotland. I'd never really thought about how, if that works, that maybe Scotland would be more inclined to um, do another independence referendum and potentially leave the UK and rejoin the EU. Um, So, no. To move on, um, I want to ask about the implications of um, Ireland and Brexit on the future, US UK trade negotiations. These were, I think, these negotiations between the US and the UK are, I guess, almost seen as a big replacement of the EU. They're seen as now going to be our main trading partner, I guess. So, how is the island situation affecting those negotiations?
1: Well, it's, if you like, a part of a pivot. The EU and the US do not have a comprehensive trade agreement. Um, of anything like the sort of level that the EU enjoys with Korea or Japan or Canada. And so one of the benefits that saw the Brexit is the UK's ability, if it does a trade agreement with the EU on one hand, it'll keep a lot of the benefits that it's had of European Union membership is how this is sold, but it might also be able to do a trade agreement with the US and up its trade in that area. So if you like, refocus and move the focus of trade which had become really about exports and imports from the European Union, but move this around and increase the percentage of export and import trade to other parts of the world. And that the UK then as an economy starts to be a linchpin. starts to be an economy that is really well connected into lots of different areas of the world. Um, And it's able to do that as being independent from the European Union. The problem with the EU and the US doing a trade deal together is that these are massive trading blocks. They are huge economies. If you take the EU together and the US, and When you have those two blocks of pretty much equal power, well, then there's a lot that one side might be expected to give way on, on certain issues, and the other side on other issues, and both sides don't want to make those trade-offs and compromises. Much easier to make trade deals with smaller countries, because if you're a smaller country, well, then yeah, the terms of trade might not be entirely advantageous to you, but you can do lots of trade deals with lots of different countries and not be seen of it as being a huge market threat. The European Union being freely able to import cars into the United States of America devastates Detroit and the American automotive industry. If you have two massive blocks, it's quite difficult for them to come to a trading agreement with each other. The UK, under Liz Truss as trade secretary, is trying to position itself as doing lots of deals everywhere. Now, the problem with this global Britain image and the linchpin of those deals, the US-UK trade deal, is that the US has seen itself as being central to the peace process in Northern Ireland. And it played a huge role in this in the 1990s. And you only have to look at Mick Mulvaney or Steve Bannon or Sean Spicer, these figures within the Trump administration or Joe Biden. All of these people are claiming Irish American roots. And it's across Republican and Democrat within the united states the causes linked to the peace process in northern ireland are seen as a totemic a fundamental for lots of well connected political actors so if the uk is eagerly seeking a trade deal with the us it can't at the same time be seen to be reneging on elements of the northern ireland protocol or doing anything that might jeopardize implementation of that protocol, because that's the same thing that will, if you like, cause all of those politicians with their interests in issues connected to Ireland and Northern Ireland, and all of that support base that the Democrats and the Republicans are eager to woo in Irish-American communities, it gets really difficult. To actually sell a free trade deal that uh, with the UK, if the UK is simultaneously doing these things that are seem to undermine the peace process in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's a circle that becomes impossible to square. So for the UK, for as long as Northern Ireland is part of the UK, it, if you like, has to make these special arrangements with regard to Northern Ireland to protect the peace process. It doesn't necessarily, the UK government at the moment, want to make those special arrangements. And it's trying to draw to them. It's making Brexit less pure, less of a complete separation between the UK and the EU that Boris Johnson wants to achieve. But at the same time, he's stuck. He cannot pull all of those away without jeopardizing the alternative to the uk being part of the european union and that's a really tricky geopolitical bind for the uk to find itself in
0: that that alternative that you speak of that's an interesting sort of implication i guess of brexit and on that northern Ireland, especially and with the sort of speed of change and 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 things that goes on with brexit and things like negotiations going one week good one week bad and Obviously, you've written a blog article here. What is the sort of, I guess, the, is, it, is it more valuable when things are changing often to write blogs rather than sort of more academic or more like blog, journals, etc. cetera, um, just when it is changing so often?
1: Well, it comes to the idea of journalism being the first draft of history and blogs have maybe given academics that opportunity to do their first reactions to a legal issue. The lag time for a journal to be produced, by the time a paper has gone through double-blind peer review and all of the production processes, it's often at least a year between the journal article being finished and submitted to it appearing in print. Um, Academia, in terms of, journal articles, are, isn't built for speedy reaction. It's built for a careful reflection on something that's happening. Now, if you, on the other hand, need to get that rapid reaction out, and sometimes that can be really important in terms of engaging academic expertise in a debate, so putting a level of expertise in that goes beyond um, the general understandings of these questions that a journalist might have, Well, then a blog post is your best framework for trying to achieve that engagement with a moving debate. And sometimes getting that engagement is vital for writing articles. If you put an idea out in a blog post, you generate lots of back and forth and discussion over that idea, and it will make your journal articles better. If you like, oftentimes a blog post is the kernel around which an article can be built up a 1000 word blog post takes a lot of time to work up into a 10,000 word article but that's a process that can be done and it's a process that gets better for having your ideas out there and to be engaged in conversations about your ideas much like we're having now rather than just trying to work this out by yourself with a computer screen
0: On that, do you think you will be, or are you, writing anything in relation to what the blog post uh, is about in a sort of more heavier journal or book style?
1: Yeah, I think these will probably find their way in different forms into some of the articles that I've been writing at the moment on human rights and equalities aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol, or even... When we get to the end of the story of what the internal market bill actually meant or what all of this overlapping ideas of sovereignty now mean for the governance space that is Northern Ireland, I think. In academic terms, yeah a lot of people are going to be writing about Brexit for years to come and trying to unpack what this is, I suppose the difficulty of doing that any of that now is if I were to try to write a full journal article on the internal market bill we just don't know this morning as the internal market bill is now being put by the UK as a bargaining chip in negotiations you do the deals that we want to see done in the joint committee with regard to the protocol and in negotiations with the future relationship agreement and we'll scrap these clauses that would break international law within the internal market bill. And that's really interesting because it then comes down to, well, how do all of those negotiations go? We'll decide whether or not this bill becomes law. And that's really hard to write on in a journal article because the entire lifespan of this bill has currently been about three and a half months. And if I was to write a, here is a, article setting out fully what the Internal Market Bill was when it was introduced and was claiming to do and it was to come out a year later, well the Internal Market Bill might have completely changed in that time and all of the clauses that were relevant would have gone out of it. In some ways the only way to have these debates is to have them through pages like blog posts.
2: Thanks for that Colin. I want to talk to you about the future for Northern Ireland where do you see it heading? Do you think with Brexit and the pros do you think there is a possibility for a shared Northern Ireland? Do you think unification is inevitable? What What's your opinions on?
1: Yeah this is the really dangerous crystal ball part of the conversation <laughs> and if you like a lot comes down to the next few years, and how people feel about what it is to be part of the United Kingdom. And in Northern Ireland in particular, that comes down to how is the protocol working? So you get two scenarios. Is it going to be the best of both worlds? Northern Ireland getting lots of benefits of EU membership, but also lots of benefits from being in the United Kingdom? Or is it going to be the worst of both worlds? Continual friction about Northern Ireland's place in between these trading orders and that actually making goods more expensive in Northern Ireland, making some suppliers pull out of Northern Ireland, generally just increasing uncertainty about life in Northern Ireland and how it's working. If it's the latter, well, then I think the pressure on this order is going to grow. If it's the former, well, then we might put this fairly fraught moment of Brexit behind us. But that still doesn't mean that Northern Ireland isn't going to be anything other than a really unique constitutional space. As I say, ideas of absolute statehood, the state is, of the United Kingdom is fully in charge in the territory of Northern Ireland, have already been put to one side. Because Northern Ireland is in a lot of EU law that the rest of the UK isn't in. So even if this all works swimmingly well, it's not because Northern Ireland is just the same as the other bits of the United Kingdom. It's because Northern Ireland is distinctly different from the other bits of the United Kingdom. And That's the question. To what degree does that difference come to define the place and does the place come to think of itself as really separate from the rest of the United Kingdom? And those are questions that will either spin out very quickly or will maybe take a few decades to unravel. But at the moment, if Brexit is the only thing that's being talked about, and the nationalist parties and the unionist parties are completely split on their idea of what Brexit means, it becomes really difficult to actually govern in Northern Ireland, to get these parties to share power and to make this work. So once again, unless this all comes through swimmingly and works really clearly from day one, we could end up in a real crisis of governance in Northern Ireland in the months ahead
0: yeah that's really interesting it does feel like it it is a long way off even though we've got a month to finalise the negotiations that we're going to be talking we could have the same conversation in months years to come Um, are you working on anything else at the minute Um, I guess I know you're teaching me for counter-terrorism next term which I mean might not have loads of brexit involved in it Um but are you working on anything that isn't related to brexit in northern ireland
1: well i suppose you'd be surprised in that regard uh, counterterrorism isn't something that states do by themselves anymore they do it very much in cooperation with other states and when you hear debates about the loss of the European arrest warrant, what might replace the European arrest warrant, that was a tool that was brought in in the aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks. So there are very many areas in which Brexit overlaps with counterterrorism law and which feed into those debates as to what it means to actually deal with the threat of terrorism in the 21st century. But yeah, between that and working on some articles probably on Brexit in the years ahead. I think, yeah, I think my research time is very much filled up with these bits of the agenda.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Colin. Well, I think that that's us finished. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting.
1: Thanks very much for having me. I'd
2: like to remind our listeners that they can access the blog post that we spoke about in the description of the podcast. And also, if there are any academics or legal professionals who are listening who would like to be a guest and get involved, so please email us at nlr at newcastle.ac.uk. Thank you very much, Colin.
1: Thank you.